Well, good morning once again, Emmanuel. My name is Pastor Mark, delighted to be leading you in the Word of God this morning. Great to sing with you this morning. The Lord is our salvation. We were broken off from God because of our sin and the great offense that it was against Him, but God in His love has sent us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus bore our sins away in His own body on the cross, and through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven and accepted and uh, made righteous, and, uh, which is great news, and so glad to sing that with you this morning. It's been a full and busy weekend. Um, boy, yesterday was a big wedding celebration here. Uh, Aaron Bugby married Courtney Rick, and a great celebration, good time to be together as a, uh, a group of people celebrating that marriage union. And uh, for me, tomorrow morning, I have a funeral for a family member. My uncle passed away this past week, and so we've been involved with that as well. And uh, my uncle, a great guy, he, uh, he married his high school sweetheart, my aunt, uh, 15 days after he graduated from high school. I like that. Same month you graduate from high school, you're going to get married, and uh, married for 64 years, and uh, great guy, but have his funeral tomorrow morning in Vassar, church in Vassar. And, uh, so I don't know if I'm here for a wedding or a funeral or what's going on. Actually, as a church, we've been uh, moving together through a, a book in the Bible. We've been having a series of messages taken out of 2 Corinthians. Uh, Pastor David already read the passage for you this morning, but I'd have you take out your Bibles and look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and the text would be verses 5 through 11. Uh, grateful for this passage. Uh, grateful that, as again, I mentioned this last week, as a church, uh, we work our way through books of the Bible because this is one of those passages, again, that if we were just a topically driven church, we may not ever hit this topic, but the text is going to lead us into something that's very helpful uh, for us as a church community. But uh, let's have a quick word of prayer as you find your place in the text, and, uh, and then I'll dive into the message for this morning. But let's, uh, let's pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, once again, we are grateful uh, to be gathered together, grateful to have your word, your truth open before us, and uh, we desire to learn from it. We desire to be shaped and formed by it. We're grateful that you use your word, which is powerful and effective in the lives of your people for their good and for your own glory. Uh, we thank you uh, for this time to be together as a church, and we pray that you'd give us, again, just an ability to focus our attention for these brief moments on you and on your word and what it means for us. And so we ask you for that kind of grace, that kind of strength, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, imagine with me, if you will, one of our summer Sunday night picnics in the pavilion. Uh, many of you would be familiar with that. Some of you, if you're guests here, you might not be familiar with that. But over the course of the summer, uh, we will gather as a church out into the, uh, the pavilion behind the church, and we'll enjoy a time of extended fellowship kind of half a dozen times over the course of the summer. So imagine with me one of those summer Sunday night picnics, and all the families have gathered together, and the kids are playing in the playscape and the playground and uh, in the giant sandbox. And imagine with me little Johnny Doe, I made that name up because I don't want to speak about anyone specifically. But imagine with me little Johnny Doe, a little preschool kid, jumps into the sandbox that's filled with dozens of other kids, and uh, little Johnny doesn't play well in the sandbox. This is not difficult to imagine, right? We've either all been there or we've seen this take place. Uh, he steals toys, he throws sand, he pushes kids down, he's just unnecessarily rough. Mom and dad, of course, see this happening and they jump in and they, they pull little Johnny out of the sandbox and they pull him aside and they give him some verbal correction. And they give him some positive instruction. And then they put little Johnny back in the sandbox, and he pulls the same stunt. And he causes the same degree of conflict there in the sandbox. So mom and dad intervene again. They intervene again, and this time with a little bit more severity, a little bit communicated seriousness, and some family embarrassment because it's their son that's causing the grief in the sandbox. 
But they give correction again, and they put little Johnny back in the same, same sandbox, and it's the same response. And so finally, mom and dad just pull little Johnny Doe from the sandbox. He's done. He's done for the night. He can't play. He can't be cooperative. He can't play there and have other ones be safe. And so he's done for the night. And out of the sandbox, little Johnny goes, and he's not permitted to play there until he can get himself together. Now, again, this is not difficult to imagine, right? We've, uh, we've all been there. Uh, if we've raised kids, or we've certainly seen that play out with other kids in the sandbox. But with that illustration in mind, let's move, uh, if, uh, if you will, from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end. Imagine with me, we have a member of the congregation, a church member who is being uncooperative and disruptive within the church in ways that are disruptive to the church's fellowship, destructive to the church's unity, harmful to its progress and faith, and detrimental to its joy in Christ. What do you do when it's little Johnny's dad is the one causing problems within the church community. What do you do when you have an uncooperative, disruptive church member? You see little Johnny in the sandbox, that isn't a big deal. That's kind of an easy button. We've all been there or we've seen that happen. But little Johnny's dad, when he becomes disruptive within the Christian community, that is a big deal. That is a big deal for how we conduct ourselves toward one another within the body of Christ influences our development as people, as new creations in Christ. Uh, last week, as we were together and we were making our way through this letter, we were reminded that, you know, God's people comfort one another. We were greatly encouraged by that message. God's people comfort one another. We were also told that God's people grieve one another. And there will be times when we will be offensive. And there are times when we will be offended because when God's people gather together, people who are being made perfect, when they gather together, the imperfections play out in less than perfect behavior and we end up hurting one another. And it's inevitable. Uh, Now, we know from the Scripture that love covers a multitude of offenses and we're grateful for that. There's just a whole host of offenses that that happen as we do life together as a Christian community, and love covers a multitude of offenses. We also know that love keeps us from keeping a record of wrongs that we hold against one another. We know that most offenses can be handled and dealt with on a personal level, doesn't need to be a community church level. But how, how do we handle the person within the Christian community? How do we handle the person in the church who is causing division? Disrupting the unity, breaking the fellowship, harming the life of the church. Hmm. Might be practical, huh? We have a baseline for behavior for people who are new creations in Christ and who regularly meet together. As a church, we don't have to make up our own rules. We don't have to enforce our personal convictions. We don't have to make cookie-cutter personalities but we do have a baseline for behavior in the church. And our baseline for behavior within the church is Jesus himself. He is our vision. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. We're moving in his direction as it relates to our attitudes and our behaviors. Jesus got it right. Jesus told us the truth. He lived perfectly. He illustrated and he instructed us on how life is to be lived. We want to be like Jesus, fully human as he is, not divine. We're not God, but we want to be like Jesus, We want to keep in step with the Spirit of Christ as the Spirit of Christ uses God's Word in our lives. And the the baseline for our behavior is Jesus himself as he's revealed in God's holy word. But because 
we were all the former chief of sinners. Because we were all kind of the worst of the worst when we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and believed on Jesus, and because none of us have yet arrived at perfect sanctification, at any moment, any one of us might become the ones who are unruly. None of us are above that. And that's humbling. And that's also helpful. My greatest problem in the church might be me. (laughs) What helps us? What helps us together from becoming unruly? You know, for by one offering, God has perfected forever those who are being made holy. And as we are being made holy, the imperfections often play out within the Christian community. What helps us from becoming unruly as a congregation? Most often, the help that is needed happens in the context of the gathered community as it responds to the ministry of God's word as we regularly gather together. The word of God is powerful and effective. The word of God confronts us and convicts us and corrects us and instructs us and directs us and shapes and forms us, and it does it to the whole of us, all of us together, over a long period of time. Most often, the correction that is needed happens as we together lean in and learn Christ together. The weekly gathering of God's people where we get together and we sing the truth and we sit under the preaching of the Word of God is not a small matter. It's a big deal as it relates to our ongoing maturity. This assembly might not be the ultimate gathering of intimacy, but it informs us on how we should be in our more intimate settings. And I understand that gathering together on the church on Sunday morning is not the sum total of our Christian life, but it's also not irrelevant. It's weighty. It's meaningful. I've I've been here 25 years. I might not ever get into your home. You might not get into mine. But we meet in this house every week. And we sing the same songs. And we hear the same message. And we partake of the same bread. And we drink from the same cup. This is meaningful. It's a big deal. I'm genuinely thankful for the gathering of this community. I need the gathering of this community. I wonder if God has me as a pastor just to keep me faithful. (laughs) I need you. You need me. And we get together every week. We often discipline one another as we simply gather together for worshiping God and hearing from his word as a larger community. But sometimes that discipline of one another as we regularly gather together, sometimes in that context, the corrections go unheeded. And the fellowship gets tested. And conflict grows instead of dissipates, and people pull away and pull apart, and they butt heads, and it gets ugly. And sometimes a member of the community needs correction by the community. What does that look like? The scripture this morning is going to help us out some. It's not the sum total of instruction on this topic, but it's, it's very practical. When we pull back from the book of 2 Corinthians and we read the entire letter, we become aware of some of the attacks 
that were leveled against Paul, the church's founding pastor. And those attacks were led by a gentleman within the church and a minority group who were behind him. The attacks, as we read through the letter, we read them and we, we understand that the attacks, his letters are weighty. But in person, he's not very impressive. He writes these great letters and they're very powerful, but when you see him, you're like, he's not impressive at all. He doesn't look like a leader. He looks more like Elmer Fudd than Superman. You want to line up behind Elmer Fudd? This guy doesn't look like a leader. He doesn't look like the part at all. Besides that, he's not very successful. He's not successful because he doesn't have reference letters. You know, other leaders come into town and they have reference letters. They have letters of recommendation. Paul doesn't have any of those. We wonder who's behind Paul. We wonder who would authenticate his ministry. Who's supporting this guy? And by way of support, he doesn't have much outside support because he's bivocational. He still runs his business while he ministers the Word of God. So he's a minister, but he also, he's this tent maker guy. Is he really committed? Or is his heart divided? And maybe he has a secret love of money. And by the way, uh, you know, beyond that, he's not much of a speaker. Paul's not a great speaker. If you're going to have a, a lineup of speakers Sunday morning, um, do we have a crisis going on here? Okay. Let me just have a quick word of prayer for this person as they get attention and help. And then we'll, we'll press back into our message this morning, okay? So these gentlemen will help. Let's just bow our eyes, close our head. Bow our heads, close our eyes. We'll pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we're grateful for your grace and kindness to us. And uh, we pray for this member now who is receiving attention and help. Uh, we pray that you administer mercy and grace to her and strength and comfort and peace as your spirit in her inner person provides that strength. We pray for those who are caring for her that uh, the help would be good, beneficial, right, and blessed. And uh, so in all of this, we ask for your help. We ask for your protection and your provision, and we're grateful for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you, gentlemen. Going back into this letter, let's redraw our attention if we can for a moment. There are people who are attacking Paul. And uh, they've said that he's, uh, he's not very impressive, he's not very successful. They question his level of support because he's bivocational, he's not a great speaker. He, uh, he also seems to regularly change his mind. And, uh, you know, he said he was going to come and stay all winter, but then he came and then he left, and then he was going to make a visit twice, but he only visited once, and there were people within the community using that against him. Instead of considering the extenuating circumstances, they were judging Paul's character and rendering Paul to be unreliable, fickle, unfaithful, and inconsistent. And the attacks on Paul were hurtful and unfounded. But more than hurting Paul, it was devastating to the church. The church is getting ripped apart by this conflict. Uh, because of the personalities involved, this was bigger than just a person-to-person -person disagreement. Uh, that would have been taken care of differently. Paul, if it was just a person-to-person -person disagreement, Paul might just bear the burden himself and bear the loss. He would have said that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You know, if someone offends you, why don't you just bear it? Take it to the cross. Leave it there. Uh, Paul might have done that, or he might have confronted the person personally. 
But because of the personalities involved and because this country and group were involved, the church is being brought into this conflict as Paul's ministry is now being questioned. And Paul is the one who brought the message of the gospel to them. And Paul is the one who they are receiving positive instruction on how to live this new life in Christ. But there's this group in the church led by this ringleader who's attempting to undermine Paul, and as he's undermining Paul, it's disrupting the faith and unity of the community. They had, if you will, a real bugger in the sandbox. Someone who's not playing well, throwing sand, pushing people down. And there's a minority group that is lined up behind this key leader. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Let's press into the text. Look at verse 5. We're finally there. This is in the context of what we looked at last week. Verse 5, now if anyone, and this anyone is actually a someone, we're going to find out in just a moment. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not only to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Paul, as I said, was the target of the attacks, but the church was being negatively impacted by the pain of this conflict. The, 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 the conflict was ripping at the unity and the harmony and the fellowship of this church. Something had to happen. Now, Paul, as we've already read in the beginning of this letter, Paul has already made a painful visit to this church. And following that painful visit, he has sent them a painful letter <laughs> telling them what they ought to do. And now we're reading here in verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote the prior letter, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. The wrong that was being done by this someone was recognized and called out, and the majority of the church knew who this troublemaker was. He's not named in the text, but the Corinthians knew who he was, and they took positive action toward him, disciplining him. Paul had wrote them a prior letter, and he instructed them to punish the person who was causing the disruption. And the church followed through, and they punished him. What was the punishment? We don't know. Wouldn't you like to know? Yeah, we'd love to know. They, they, they punished him. We, we don't know how they punished him, but it was administered, and it was effective. How do we know it was effective? Because it led to sorrow on the part of the offender. And as we get deeper in the letter, we understand that there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And this gentleman who was causing division within the church was punished by the church, and the punishment was effective because it led to sorrow on his part. He was educated by the discipline as he was corrected by the majority, and he was sorrowful for the actions that he had taken that had caused pain. Uh, the punishment, whatever it was, strong admonition or removal from the sandbox, you can't play here if you're going to be like that. Well, we don't know what it was, but the punishment was effective. Now, in this letter that Paul's writing them, he's calling the church to forgive him. The one who'd caused pain. Forgive him and comfort him and reaffirm their love for him. For if they don't, this guy is going to drown in excessive sorrow. He'll be overwhelmed. So the church had turned to punish him, as Paul had instructed them. 
And now they need to turn and forgive and encourage and love him. They need to turn and extend him grace and encourage his heart and show their love for him. This is toward the guy who has caused the church pain. Because if they don't do that, they'll be guilty of causing division like he did by leaving him outside when he wants back in. And if they do that, they'll play right into Satan's hands. We know what Satan's thinking. We know what Satan's doing. He's out to disunify and disrupt the fellowship of the God's people. And it's the fellowship of God's people that reveals to the world the purpose for which God sent Jesus to the world. To reconcile people to Christ and to reconcile people to one another. So this is a big deal. They had a bugger in the sandbox. They had to punish him. We don't know what the punishment was. But they punished him, and whatever it was, it was effective. It led him to sorrow. And now Paul's saying, you got to reach out to him, forgive him, extend him grace, show your love for him, encourage his heart. Because if you don't, you'll just be on the same path he was on and causing division. You see, without forgiveness, there's no moving forward. Verse 10 Paul writes to them and he says, Any, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we might not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Christ works for the church. Satan, the adversary, works against the church. We're not ignorant of the thoughts of Jesus, nor are we ignorant of the thoughts of the adversary because they have been revealed in the Scripture and those thoughts are contrary to one another. Jesus unifies, Satan divides. A good question for any one of us who regularly meet here together would be, is my attitude, is my actions, is my conduct benefiting the unity of faith of this church as we press on toward maturity in Christ? Am I helping this church to become one? helping this church to become one. In the Corinthian church, the attacks were directed toward Paul, their founding pastor, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul was deeply hurt. The church was being divided. Uh, The offender had been repentant, and Paul's response was to forgive the sorrowful offender. And Paul was the one who was the most attacked. And Paul's the one saying, no, you need to turn and forgive him. Instead of waiting, if you will, to see what the church would do, Paul says, I I forgive him. I forgive him first. And it's his forgiveness that would free and educate the church to do the same thing. Because now the majority group in the church who were supportive of Paul are saying, hey, Paul's forgiven this guy. We ought to do the same thing. They can now forgive and encourage and love him Because Paul, the one who is most offended, has already forgiven him. And Paul says in his letter that he forgave him for the sake of the church. Because the unity of the church and their obedience to the faith is far more important than Paul's potentially offended ego. Paul forgave the sorrowful offender for the sake of the church. And Paul was able to forgive the powerful offender or the offender because Paul was the chief of sinners and God had forgiven him. 
The sins which Paul had committed were against God, the great Holy One. And Paul, God had worked salvation, and Paul, God had worked forgiveness for Paul. The sins which were against God, God paid for those in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. And when Paul received Jesus as his Savior, placed his faith, transferred his trust into Jesus Christ, Paul's sins were forgiven fully and freely because the debt had been paid. And now Paul is able to forgive others on that foundation. Who is Paul to withhold forgiveness from another servant who has acted unfaithfully like himself? How how could Paul, whose colossal sins against God had been forgiven completely, how could he not forgive another saint like himself? Yeah, Paul's sins had been forgiven. He had experienced that forgiveness. He was now free and enabled to forgive others. That was the foundation for which he was forgiving, even toward those who had been the most offensive. You think of through some of the attacks that were leveled against Paul. They were horrific. He's unreliable. He's unfaithful. He's untrustworthy. He doesn't, he doesn't, he keeps changing his mind. He's not a great speaker. He doesn't have reference letters. He's not a, who is this guy? And again, not only were the attacks against him, but it was very disruptive to the church. All right, before we move uh, from this text, let me, uh, let, me important, uh, let me highlight some important things from this passage that ought not to be lost on us. Uh, just by way of uh, information, we're currently in a, in a uh, series of messages through the book of 2 Corinthians, so we're kind of making our way through this letter, and there's just a lot of things to learn from this book. Uh, even before we got here, the elders are talking about where we go with the preaching. It's one of the responsibilities of the elders of this church to, to talk through the preaching and where we're going. And uh, there was a decision made uh, just recently that... Um, when this series of 2 Corinthians is completed, we might do a short topical series on the matter of forgiveness. And, and, and so we'll, we'll circle back into this. This isn't the sum total on this topic. Forgiveness in our days has fallen on hard times in our culture and in our community, and that, that seeps within the culture of the church. Uh, forgiveness, to be forgiving, is a, a sign of weakness. And what do you do about justice? And what do you do about righteousness? And what do you do with the offender? And so, so this is good instruction, but uh, we'll probably circle back to that. Now, you can test me because I might be like Paul and we get done with 2 Corinthians and move on to something else. And you can say, well, he said he's not very reliable. Whatever, we'll see how that plays out. But the, the, the plan is after 2 Corinthians to move into a, a topical series, short topical series on this matter of forgiveness. But let, let, let's, let's think through some things real briefly before we close. First, I've got a number of points here. Uh, First, the offense was real, as were the consequences of the offense. In the church, people were hurt. People were hurt. And people were being divided and ripped apart. This is a hard situation. This is a real bummer. This is pain from within, not persecution from without. And in this situation, the offense in the church is not downplayed. And it's not overlooked. If righteousness doesn't prevail here, there'll be damage. Damage to people. Damage to the church. Uh, second, the offense wasn't a punishable offense. Not every offense is punishable. There are a lot of offenses that just happen within the Christian community as Christians hurt one another. And they don't rise to the level of ripping the church apart. Or, or testing its unity, or its fellowship, or its joy in the Lord. 
But this, was a, this offense was a punishable offense. It was a punishable offense because it was a publicly disruptive offense. The church is being torn by this. It was destroying the unity of the whole. Third, both the punishment and the forgiveness were the loving things to do. Now we need to hear that probably more than once. Both the punishment and the forgiveness were the loving things to do. And the punishment needs to be nothing more than what leads the offender to repentance. It might be a strong rebuke or it might be separation out of the sandbox or somewhere in between, but the punishment doesn't need to be extreme if repentance is genuine and the change of heart comes about readily. You know, my wife and I, we raised four children. They're now all married and having children, nine grandchildren, one more on the way. We're so blessed and pleased. And I have 10 of those buggers under five years old. <laughs> There'll be offenses this Thanksgiving at our house <laughs> because sin makes us treat one another badly. And sometimes little buggers need to be separated from the sandbox because they don't play well. But Lynn and I, we raised four children, all married. And it's fascinating to discipline our children because they're all four very unique personalities. And we had a child that I could give just a strong word of rebuke to and they would fall apart and be sorrowful and repentant genuinely. And then there were other kids that needed more pain. That's the way it was. The punishment and the forgiveness were both the loving things to do, and the punishment doesn't need to go beyond what leads the offender to repentance because restoration is the intended goal. Discipline isn't the intended goal. Restoration is the intended goal. And Paul could immediately forgive because at the very start, that was the intended purpose. And this is the confidence that Paul has in the Corinthians that they're going to do the right thing. He's writing them a letter He's not seen their forgiveness, but he anticipates that they will based on his own actions as a leader, but also on their obedience to Jesus Christ for their unity of faith and fellowship. And then finally, it is obedience to Jesus by all the parties. It is obedience to Jesus by the former offender and by the church that will glorify God, unify the church, and defeat Satan's schemes. And that obedience is patterned after Jesus' obedience. He's our vision. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus obeyed his Father and bore our sins away in his own body on the cross. And through that, Jesus has secured our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God completely. Therefore, the followers of Jesus Christ are a reconciling community following the example of Jesus Christ. Believing him, keeping in step with the spirit of Christ that's in us. So here's the message series so far from 2 Corinthians. We began and we said, you know, God's people comfort one another. That's a tremendous blessing. God extends his comfort to his people through his people. And that comfort is real and it's embodied and it's tangible. It's not just something we feel or think. It's actually something we experience. God's people comfort one another. God's people grieve one another. It's a reality within the church. 
as all of us have been made perfect and are being made perfect, that often works out in varying degrees of imperfection within the community. So God's people comfort one another and God's people grieve one another. This morning we learn as we continue to press in, God's people forgive one another. And they extend grace to one another. And they encourage and support one another and they reaffirm their love for one another. And in all of it, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. And that's where we go next week. Uh, Next week, we, we press more into Paul's changing plans, but Paul's effective ministry as he relies on Jesus Christ and does the ministry in his power. Let me, uh, let me close this time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your word. It is so helpful, so instructive, so beneficial to us. More than that, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that though we were broken off from you, you have reconciled us to yourself through the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the payment of Christ and the cross was sufficient for the sins of the world. And we're grateful that you accept all who come to you through Jesus fully forgiving them, fully accepting them, bringing them into your family as your adopted children. Grace that we cannot begin to measure and grace that will extend out into eternity and awe us forever. So we're thankful for it. Father, I pray that as a people here who meet together regularly and sing the same songs and hear the same word and partake of the same cup and partake of the same bread, I pray that we would be growing in unity and in fellowship as we learn Christ together and as you use your word to grow your people. You are so kind to us, and we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.